Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy family. Morning. What a great story. All right, well, what's up, Mercy Northeast? I'm sure they're very loud. Um, And anyone joining us online, what's up? I'm sure they're a lot quieter. Um, It's my joy to be with you this morning. If I've never met you before, my name is Jake. I get to serve as the executive pastor here at Mercy. And I am pumped about this story. But before we get into this story, I want to start with a different story. So the year was 2006, and I had just moved from my small Midwest town to the large city of Portland, Oregon, to study the Bible at a Christian college that was there. Full of excitement and a sense of adventure, I was eager to try new things, meet new people, and grow deeper in love with Jesus. Well, a couple of months into my time there, someone came to my dorm room and said something to the effect of, hey, a group of us is headed to get bubble tea. Do you want to come? I didn't have a car, so any opportunity to get off campus was a much welcome opportunity. And I had never really heard of any other kind of tea other than hot tea and sweet tea. Uh, Anybody who drinks regular tea, that's not a thing where I grew up. So the idea of bubble tea sounded interesting. I said, well... I like blowing bubbles, so we'll give it a try. Well, about 10 minutes after sitting down and learning that I liked this newly discovered tea, a fellow student from my school came up to me to chat about a book that I was reading called Wild at Heart. She began this conversation rather abruptly with something to the effect of, that book is stupid. I was caught off guard, right? But I didn't rebut defensively. Clearly, something else was going on in this girl's story that I didn't know about. So I inquired as to why she held this opinion, and she went on to tell me how marriage is dumb, love isn't real, and men are garbage. It was a really joy-filled conversation. Well, I did the best that I could to let her know that I respectfully disagreed and that I believed that marriage could be awesome if it was fought for frequently. And in the end, our conversation was maybe only 10 minutes long and didn't really leave much of an impact on me or my personal review of the book itself. But just a few months later, after this conversation, I found myself in close friendship with this same young lady and beginning to have romantic feelings for her. Well, now she's my wife. (laughs) And after almost 14 years of marriage, I was right. Sometimes I wonder, though, when I think back on this first interaction, how things might have been different if I had known who she actually was, or more if I had known who she would become in my life. And in today's text, we're going to see a woman who doesn't really know who she's speaking with, at least not at first. My desire with our time today is to highlight who Jesus is and the gift that he offers 
So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dig into the text, starting in verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. All right, so a quick recap of what's been going on in in our uh, John series. Jesus started off his public ministry with some miraculous signs, some really key and important conversations, some bold proclamations challenging the religiosity of the day and gaining a pretty big following as he preached about his kingdom. The word gets out that Jesus is gaining a lot of followers. And for the religious rulers of the time, this is the problem. This Jesus guy is becoming a threat to them. And Jesus knows this. Remember, he's God. So he knows that them hearing that he's baptizing more people than the guy named after his baptizing ability is a problem. And he knows this. So what does he do? Well, he leaves. He and his disciples embark towards Galilee and pass through a region named Samaria. He stops off in a city along the journey called Sychar for some needed rest. Remember, Jesus is God, but he's also fully human. So as you can imagine, after a few days of walking, he's tired and he needs rest. He finds his recess near a well, and we learn in verse 8 that his disciples take off to head into town to grab some food, leaving him alone at this well right around noon. Now before we go any further in the text, I want to point out something that the original readers, when they first heard this story or read this story, they would have been thinking at this point in the story. Wait, what? Jesus and his disciples went through Samaria? Why in the world would they do that? Here's what we need to know today. For many, many generations, there was a building tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So much so that in a society where cars didn't exist and most journeys were made on foot, Jewish people, especially law-abiding Strict law-abiding ones would generally avoid the more efficient route through Galilee and go around an even further journey to avoid this region, to avoid its people. I wonder what regions and people are we prone to avoid today? More on that in a bit, but let's unpack what the big deal is here between the Samaritans and the Jews. Why all of this extra walking? Well, to answer that, we we have to do a little history lesson. So I'm going to invite you into a quick history lesson. Who's ready? Some people love history. All right, I'm going to go through this as quick as I can. Around a thousand years prior to this conversation, the people of Israel rejected God as their king and a monarchy in Israel was established. Eventually, this kingdom split into two separate kingdoms. While the northern kingdom was eventually defeated by an Assyrian enemy force. Assyria also was conquering many Gentile nations surrounding Israel and various refugees from Israel and from some of these conquered Gentile nations began to live in this same region together. Okay, so after a little while, what happens is the Israelites who were left in this region began to intermarry with people who came from all these different foreign nations that were also conquered. And as a result of this intermarrying, two things happened. First, an ethnically mixed people began to form. Ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles were married and they made babies. Second, the monotheistic religion that was the standard for the original Israelite people before the kingdom was divided began to dilute and change. 
Eventually, this ethnically and religiously mixed people lived in this region became known as the Samaritans. So after the exile, when all of this stuff comes to an end, the Jews began to return to their homeland and they viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as an ethnically mixed people whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. Because of this, really strict Jews believed that the Samaritan people were unclean in and of themselves, and thus they rejected them and avoided them. Lots and lots of history over many generations between the Jews and the Samaritans. Here's what we need to know for our text today. The Jews did not like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans did not like the Jews. Keeping this in mind, let's continue in the text, picking back up in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. All right, I want to pause here real quick. I know, I know, I'll get there. I'm not Jesus, so I'm taking the long way around. I want us to take note of multiple things that are important to know about this specific culture and the context of this story that the original readers would have innately known. In addition to the history of the Samaritans and the Jews, there's more going on in this story that we need to know. When we read the Bible, context is crucial for true understanding. So here are several things for us to note before we move into the dialogue. First, in this context, women would typically be responsible for gathering the water for their household. This was a daily chore that was normal for the women of the time to carry out. Secondly, women were very isolated in this context, very looked down upon in society. In particular, Jewish men would generally avoid even speaking with a woman in public, even their own wife. So as you can imagine, women surely felt very isolated. Although women talking with other women wasn't frowned upon in the same way as women talking with men, so this daily task of fetching water became a social activity for many women of this time. The women of the town would journey out to the well, sometimes a mile away or more from the town, and they would talk and converse and connect socially along the way. And as you can imagine, for a woman who's probably feeling very isolated and lonely, this was probably a time of the day that a lot of women look forward to, a highlight of their day. We were made as human beings for connection with other people. And so you can imagine that in a society like this, it's odd for a woman to be by herself. The third thing I want us to note is that generally speaking, the most common time of the day to go get water for Jill to go fetch a pail of water was in the early morning or in the evening when it was cool. This is a hot climate. So the peak of the day, when the sun is at its highest, is an unideal time to go get water. Here's what we need to pay attention to for our context. She is alone, and she came in the heat of the day. These are textual clues that should lead us as readers and listeners to think that she was an outcast, even among her own people. All right. We're done with our history lesson. Here's a quick recap for those of you that I lost. The pieces we need to know. Jesus is headed to Galilee. Instead of taking the more common path around Samaria, Jesus goes the road less traveled through a region full of people that were commonly despised by the Jews. Sitting by himself, Jesus is approached by a Samaritan woman who's alone either by choice or by exclusion. With this in mind, let's go back to verse 7 and continue. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, O Samaritan woman, she asked, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now the scene starts off with a scandalous shock factor. Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi Jew, asks this woman for a drink. So taken aback, she replies, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She knows that he's not supposed to be talking to her. And she knows that most Jews think that even touching a cup that a Samaritan has touched would create defilement and uncleanness in themselves. So she's surely shocked that he's asking her to give him some water. Well, Jesus, ignoring the walls that she begins to put up, responds with a deep spiritual truth. Look back at verse 10. This is going to be our anchor verse today. This is what I want to do. I want to read this verse aloud because I want this verse to sink in. We're going to come back to it multiple times. So the words are on the screen behind me. Speak out loud and follow along. It goes like this. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. If you knew, you would ask and he would give. The reason this is our anchor verse is because it serves as an outline for this whole conversation. The first part of the conversation in verses 7 through 15, I think Jesus is trying to get this woman to understand spiritual things. Spiritual things about the gift of God, about living water. And the second part, which we'll get to shortly, is about relational things. It's about knowing who Jesus is and about knowing him personally. So when Jesus responds to her saying that she should have asked him for water, she's likely even more taken aback, maybe even confused. In her mind, he's referring to a certain kind of actual water. Let me explain. The word that Jesus uses for living water was sometimes understood to mean fresh or flowing water, the kind of water that comes from a stream or a river. And in this culture, this particular kind of water was considered superior to water from a well. This is the meaning that she understands. She thinks that Jesus is offering her literal water from a nearby stream. Look at her response. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. She's thinking very literally. This well to the Samaritan people, to her people, represents sacred historical ground. And Jacob is one of the founding fathers of her belief system. So if Jacob himself didn't find this stream or source of living water, then how could this Jewish man that's before her have found it? But she's not understanding what Jesus means. He's not talking about literal water. He's not talking about water from a stream nearby, but despite her misunderstanding, he patiently continues. He's so gentle. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This doubling down on this living water is Jesus alluding back to verse 10. The gift that is referenced in verse 10 is the living water. 
And this brings us to our second meaning of the word he uses when he says living water, his intended meaning. When Jesus refers to the gift, and again in verse 10 to the living water, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, to God himself. To learn this, we have to zoom out and see the way that the Bible and the book of John uses the water to symbolize the Holy Spirit, to symbolize God. Now, I don't have time to get into all of it, but I want to show you two verses that I think are helpful here. The first is in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. God himself is mourning, and he says, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Here, God is calling himself the source of living water. And later in the Bible, John, our same author, writes the book of Revelation. This is a book that tells us what's to come at the end of time. And he paints this picture of this same living water in Revelation 21, 6. Then he, referring to God, said to me, referring to John, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. That spring is God himself. It's God's spirit. Even more, the Greek word in verse 10 that's used for gift, remember, if you knew the gift of God, the Greek word that's used for gift is the same word that's used all throughout Acts to describe the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, just as he has been teaching from the beginning, that he is God. And that this gift of living water The Holy Spirit, the gift of God, will lead to eternal life found only in God. But this woman, she still doesn't understand. Look in verse 15 at her response. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Remember our anchor verse, if you knew the gift of God, does her question, now finally asking Jesus for water, does it reveal that she now understands this gift? No, not not quite yet. Let's pick back up in verse 16 as the conversation shifts. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. As readers, we should ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing here? This woman has already misconstrued the understanding of the water that Jesus is offering her. Clearly, she hasn't understood who this person is that she's talking with. And I think the thing that's most important to note here, and maybe the most relevant to each of us in this room, is that before she misunderstood the meaning of the water, the gift, she misunderstood her own need. She came to this well thirsty, and that makes sense. She needs this water. It will help meet her physical needs. But Jesus didn't primarily come to this world church to meet our physical needs. He cares about them, absolutely. But he's most interested in our deeper and truer need, our spiritual thirst. This woman's problem, our problem, isn't physical thirst. It's spiritual thirst. And and this seemingly abrupt shift in the topic is Jesus's gentle and persistent way of showing this woman her deeper need. 
It's in this part of the conversation that we learn the most likely reason behind her loneliness in this chore of retrieving water alone by herself in the heat of the day. This woman has had five husbands. And the man that she's now with isn't even her husband. Listen, church, I don't think that this number is allegorical or figurative. She has been with six different men. Now, we don't know the stories behind these six relationships, and the scriptures never tell us the details. But here's what we do know about this woman she was hurting, and she's alone. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you come in here hurting. Maybe you came to church this morning alone. Listen, I'm so glad that you're here. But my gladness pales in comparison to Jesus's. He is ready for you. How do I know this? Listen, Jesus picked this road through Samaria. He chose this well. He knew who was going to come at noon. And I think he planned it all. Every little detail. He wanted to be in this moment. He wanted her to know the gift of God and who is asking her for a drink. Why? Because he wants to give. This is who he is, friend. So if you're here today and you feel overlooked, I want to remind you that he sees you. Just as he saw what was really going on in this woman's life, he sees what's really going on in yours. He saw her pain and he sees yours too. If you knew, you would ask and he would give. The story continues and she replies to him, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you hear this rich theological teaching? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? These are profound and deep truths. He's talking about his kingdom, the one that he's been talking about since chapter one of our book, but she still doesn't understand yet. Look at her response. The woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's like she's saying, I hear you, but let's just agree to disagree. When the Messiah gets here, he'll explain it to both of us. You see, both the Jews and the Samaritans believed in a Messiah. They believed that a Messiah was coming. While there were differences about the specific interpretations that they had in their religions, they both were expecting a Messiah, the hope of salvation for a long, long time. Then comes the peak of our conversation. 
the culmination of this conversation. Look at these glorious words in verse 26. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the first time in the gospel of John that Jesus himself reveals himself as the Messiah. And he picks this Samaritan woman to do this to. The Messiah has arrived and he's enacting a new way of worship, a worship that isn't governed by place and rules and animal after animal after animal being killed, spilling its blood for the forgiveness of sins. No, he's here to bring the kingdom. This Jewish man is talking with this mixed woman who's part Jew and part Gentile, telling her that he's he's bringing the kingdom, the kingdom he's been preaching about since chapter one. He's telling her that God is spirit and the time is here when people won't worship God like they used to. No, they will worship a God who dwells not in a tent or a temple or the side of a mountain, but in the hearts of his people, in the hearts of those that believe. The king has arrived. The silence between the testaments is broken. The lamb of God with one final sacrifice will secure forgiveness forever. He's here. Hallelujah. And then this concludes our interaction between Jesus and this woman. And as good readers, we have to pause and ask, what happened? What happens to this woman? Before we get there, I want to remind us of our anchor verse. Verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. In the first half of this conversation, Jesus is revealing to her what the gift of God is, this living water. And in the second part, he's gently pressing on the spaces of her heart where there's the most pain. And in this, he's revealing who he is. He is the Messiah, the Christ Maybe you've heard it said before in church that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. There's plenty to back this up throughout all of the biblical story. God often isn't what we expect. He often doesn't do what we expect. And church, that's part of the reason he's so wonderful. I mean, I'm not really that interested in a God that I can figure out. Are you? If he's always doing what I, a sinful, temporary, and prone to wander soul, expect him to do, then he's really not that wonderful. He's really not that awesome. He's really not that worthy. And in this story, God's upside down kingdom is on center stage display. John wrote this book to a Jewish audience. And while this story might not seem that scandalous to us in Americans and in 2022, it would have been to them. There are several things that made this story very upside down. First, this woman isn't Jewish. No, she's an ethnically mixed Samaritan. He reveals himself first to someone who's not even Jewish. Jesus is showing us that his kingdom is for the Jew and for the Gentile. This Samaritan is isolated as a woman and rejected by her very own people. He reveals himself first to a woman. Jesus is showing us that in his kingdom, 
Women are needed. And there is inclusiveness to any type of outcast. This woman is hurting in her sin. Jesus handles her sin, yes, but gently. Jesus is showing us that his kingdom brings healing more than punishment. And this woman thinks that worship is tied to a specific place, a specific moment. And Jesus is showing us that his kingdom is wherever his people are. The Messiah is supposed to bring a kingdom. And to most of these Jewish readers, the kingdom is about their people. It's about their ethnic line. It's about their religion being right. It's about defeating their enemies. And sadly, we're not that much different today. Racism, bigotry, prejudice, sexism, arguing over various interpretations of the Bible, these have all created a disdain in many of our hearts for people who God specifically crafted and loves. These things have divided the church And they've slowed the gospel movement. This is part of why we at Mercy want to pursue multicultural unity under the name of Jesus. And listen, church, we today still have so far to go. We have so far to go in loving people of all cultures and in loving women. Jesus is not like us. And I think that's John's whole point. Jesus is not often what we expect him to be. This is why the kingdom feels upside down. But really, we're the ones who are upside down. Perhaps the most striking thing to me in my studies of this story was found back in verse 4. It says, he had to travel through Samaria. The language here depicts this idea that it was necessary for Jesus to travel through Samaria, but we know from context and other sources that certainly it wasn't necessary. Why would Jesus, who is God, have to do anything that he didn't want to? He wouldn't. And I think, I think it's here that we see that what compels Jesus is different than what compels us. I've heard this story of the woman at the well talked about before as Jesus going out of his way to meet this woman. And and I think that's actually a little bit off. It's subtle, but I think that it's off. Jesus doesn't go out of his way. We only think that it's out of his way because it would be out of our way to intentionally go into the Samarias of our time. Jesus took the shorter path. We take the longer one. Jesus isn't like us. His inclusive kingdom feels upside down because Jesus loves outcasts. He loves the one. And I think what's on display in this story, it tells us so much about who Jesus is and what he's like. If you knew, you would ask and he would give. And believer, doesn't this give us a powerful insight into how we as his followers should live? We have to stop going out of our way to avoid people that God loves. People that God has put right in our path. I wonder who is someone that you're going out of your way to avoid right now. Think of the homeless person that you see every day on that same street corner asking for change. Do you know her name? I bet Jesus would and he'd call her by it. 
How about that difficult coworker who's always talking about himself? He's always one-upping everyone's stories and his obnoxious ego is so irritating to you that you'd rather just avoid him altogether. I bet Jesus would happily ask him about his weekend and then sit and listen attentively. What about that neighbor who's, diff- who's from a different ethnicity than you and is quite a bit older or younger than you are and maybe you think it's unlikely to ever become friends because of the cultural and the age gap between you and him? I bet Jesus would invite him over for dinner and give it a try. You see, my friends, Jesus is in the business of turning things upside down or rather right side up. This story is evidence. He had to go to Samaria. He wanted to talk with this Samaritan. Jesus loves people from all cultures and all ethnic backgrounds. He wanted to talk with this woman. Jesus loves women. This perfect rabbi, sinless, and powerful in every way, wanted to talk with this woman. This is why he went this route. And he brings his whole self to her as a Jewish male. He doesn't throttle who he is. He comes as a Jewish man and talks with this woman. Church, this woman is despised because of her ethnicity and isolated because of her gender and rejected by her peers because of her scandalous reputation. So what happens to her? For her, this is just another lonely and laborious day where she journeys from Sychar to Jacob's well. She's in the normal and hard routine of her life. But on this day, things would be different. She wouldn't return home the same way that she normally did, toting a heavy jar full of water and heading back into whatever her home was like with this man who's probably just taking advantage of her? No, not today. Today she meets Jesus. And while she doesn't know the gift of God or who's asking her for water when she first gets there, his gentle patience, his diligent pursuit, and his confrontational love all come together in a profoundly beautiful moment when he graciously tells her, I am he. I am the one you've been waiting for. And I'm the one who can quench your actual thirst forevermore. And I know you. I know all of you. And I want you. I love you, daughter. What begins as an ordinary day ends in an extraordinary way. Look at what happens to her as a result of this encounter in verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. She heads home with a different kind of water than she came looking for, living water. And in a moment of humor and poetic punch, she leaves her jar She has no need for this water. She just met the source of living water. And while the text doesn't give us this clear, and then she asked Jesus into her heart. 
It gives us something so much better, church. She goes and tells all of the people of this man who told her everything she ever did. And you can picture her joy as she invites them to come and see him for themselves. And next week, you're going to get to see that her preaching, her evangelism leads to many, many people coming to know the Messiah. So this is where I want to land. I'm going to have the band come up and prepare us for worship. I don't have any sermon points today other than three questions to leave you with. Do you know the gift of God? Do you know it? Do you know him who is offering you this gift? And will you ask him for a drink? Listen, if you're in this room or you're listening online and you don't believe yet, maybe today is your day. Would you ask him for a drink? He's ready to give you living water. If you need help, come and talk to me or talk to somebody you came with, the person you prayed with. Find a staff member or a leader. We'd love to help you. Maybe you're here today and like most others in the room, you've already received this water. Praise God. Do you need to be refreshed? Living water is fresh water. It's flowing water. He wants to pour out his spirit anew on you this morning in these next moments. One of our values as a church is we expect God to change a life today. And that expectancy is about the spirit of God showing up and transforming us. Not just for those that are lost, but for those that are saved. Do you need to be refreshed? Ask him for a drink. Or believer, maybe God is showing you something this morning in your heart, something ugly, something that you need to repent of, the way that you see people. Who have you been avoiding? What Samaritans are in your world? Who do you need to invite to come and see the man who gave you this living water? One more time, our anchor verse, I want to read it together, starting in verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. If you knew, you would ask and he would give So let's go to him and ask and let his spirit pour out on us as we worship.